Here's a really special deal on a great product from our friends over at Fresh Pressed Olive Oil Club. You can now receive a $39 bottle of artisanal fresh pressed oil free if you just pay $1 to help cover shipping. And there's nothing else you must buy now or ever. It's a wonderful opportunity because with olive oil, my number one rule is the fresher, the better. That's because the olive is a fruit and olive oil is actually a fruit juice. Like any other fruit juice, extra virgin olive oil is at its glorious peak of freshness, flavor, and nutritional potency when fresh squeezed. And that's what's missing with so many supermarket olive oils. After sitting on the shelf for months or even years, they've lost their freshness and can't compare with just pressed Evu shipped direct from the new harvest. Here at Milk Street, we really like these oils' vibrant, grassy flavors, as well as the intoxicating aroma, just like a garden in a bottle. Prove it yourself with no obligation to buy anything ever. For your free $39 bottle direct from an award-winning artisanal farm, go to getfresh177.com. That's getfresh177.com. One last time, getfresh177.com. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Buying furniture is not easy. You want well-designed pieces that fit into a modern lifestyle, yet the look should be timeless. And you want a custom experience creating furniture designed specifically for your space. My suggestion is that you check out Cozy, a North American company that thoughtfully designs furniture for modern living. Their high-quality products are delivered quickly and are easy to assemble. Cozy also offers a great range of coffee tables, washable rugs, wall shelving, and credenzas. Their outdoor collection features high-quality modular sofas and sectionals made for outdoor living. You can visit their store in Toronto. Cozy now has expanded from an online market to their first in-person space, or go directly to their website at Cozy.com. That's C-O-Z-E-Y.com. Transform your living space today with Cozy. Visit Cozy.com to start customizing your furniture today. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Hi, this is Christopher Kimball. Thanks for listening to Milk Street Radio. You can go to our website, 177milkstreet.com, to get our recipes, to stream our television show, or to get our latest cookbooks. Here's this week's show. This is Milk Street Radio from PRX. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. I always go on about our reliance on processed foods 
if we moved away from that and started to appreciate whole foods, that would be a good start. And then from there, the next step would be, well, do I want the organic version of that or do I want the local version of that? So there's, there's lots of different steps in between modern processed food and running naked in the forest, picking wild mushrooms. That was Rowan Anderson. He's an Australian food blogger whose latest book, A Year of Practiculture, takes eating locally to the extreme, from cooking kangaroo to making sneaky eel dip and telling his guests that they are actually eating smoked trout. I'll be speaking to him a bit later in the show. But first, it's time to head into the kitchen with Raina Javeri for this week's recipe. Raina, how are you? Hi, Chris. I'm well. Today, we are in Paris. <gasps> Just... Close your eyes, you're in Paris. We're at the Rose Bakery, uh, and they do a lot of vegetables and sort of healthy food. And uh, the pastries are wonderful. And one of the things they have there is a pistachio cake, which is to die for. So today, I, we thought we would uh, take a hint from Rose Bakery and do a pistachio cardamom cake, and it's, it's a one-layer cake. Yeah, we love this cake, Chris, because it's basically elevating the quick bread to an art form. So for our version, we're pairing toasted pistachios with cardamom as well as ground orange zest, which gives it a distinctly Middle Eastern flavor. Now, we wanted a lot of pistachio flavor in this, but that meant we needed to grind the nuts quite finely so that we don't compromise the structure of the cake. So what we used was one and a quarter cup of unsalted pistachios, toasted and cooled, with one cup of all-purpose flour. Now, here's the important part. Don't skip toasting the pistachios because the difference in flavor between raw and toasted pistachios is quite significant. And we also want to add cardamom. So this is regular, fl- is this regular all-purpose flour mm-hmm. yeah, and ground pistachios. So it's nut flour and wheat flour together. That's exactly right. And then, as I mentioned, we add orange zest as well, for which we combine one cup of sugar with two teaspoons of grated orange zest. To this, we're going to add four eggs, which may sound like a lot of eggs, but they actually provide a lot of structure, which this cake needs. And then for some flavor and moisture, we have a quarter cup of orange juice, vanilla, and yogurt. And then at the end, a quarter cup of olive oil helps keep the cake really moist. So we prefer the clean taste of regular olive oil to butter, but you can also use vegetable oil. So you're trying to fake me out. This is dump and stir. This is Fanny Farmer 101. But the ingredients are cooler. Yeah, you caught me, Chris. This is a dump and stir, but we're going to make it fancy. (laughs) To top it, we're going to make a glaze with yogurt and some powdered sugar and then sprinkle it with more toasted and chopped pistachios. So pistachios, orange juice, olive oil, yogurt, everything (laughs) I need. I don't have to go to Paris. I can just stay at home. Thank you, Raina. You're welcome, Chris. You can find all of our recipes at MilkStreetRadio.com. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Now let's take some of your cooking questions with my co-host, Sarah Bolton. She's star of Sarah's Weeknight Meals and author of Home Cooking 101. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, this is Susan. Hi, Susan. How are you? Fine. And you? I'm well. Sarah, am I well? You look pretty good. Yeah. Okay, yep, pretty, yep. I, that's the best <laughs> I could get out of her pretty good. So <laughs> how can we help you? Well, my question was to do with buttermilk. A lot of recipes, especially baked goods, call for buttermilk. And I was wondering, first of all, if you had a substitute or if regular milk can be substituted. And um, 
What exactly does buttermilk do for these recipes? It does two things. It provides flavor, obviously. It also provides acidity. So if you have baking soda, for example, in a recipe, you need something acid to create carbon dioxide gas for lift. So you can get a lighter product because it's full of acid. I find buttermilk powder you can keep in the fridge. One cup of water plus one quarter cup of powder equals a cup of buttermilk. I don't think it works that well. I think it's okay. I've tried the teaspoon of lemon juice in a cup of milk. It just curdles uh, it. And that just doesn't work as far as I'm concerned very well. The best thing is use yogurt and thin it out a little bit. So maybe you get a two-thirds or three-quarter cup of yogurt and then add water, whisk it into a cup. That's probably the best simplest thing. What kind most, of yogurt? Just, just plain. Just plain. All right. Yeah, that, okay. that's by far Three the best. Three quarters cup. Okay. Add water to, to a make. cup for one cup of buttermilk. Yeah. Okay. So, so it is necessary then in the recipe calls for it. Yeah. If it calls for buttermilk, just use yogurt thin down and you'll be all set. Yogurt. Okay. Yeah, that's the best. Okay. Great. Great. Well, it was fun talking to you. Same all here. Both. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> Take care. All right. Bye-bye. Hello. Who do we have on the line? Daniel. He's from Texas. Daniel, hello. So we have a Zoji Rushi wonderful rice cooker that also can use pressure cooking for some stages of the rice cooking, but we always turn out with a less than optimal product. Uh, our rice is not as delicious as it could be, and we're wondering what could be the reason for that. Well, I recently discovered a ceramic pottery rice cooker. I think they're 60 or $70, which is a fair amount of money to spend. The Zoji Rushi rice maker we have is the top-of-the-line uh, rice cooker they make, which is about $700. What? Ooh, I think maybe he doesn't want to give up, but Daniel, I have a feeling you'd like to hold on to your rice cooker. Exactly. You've made an investment. Are you doing all those other things like rinsing and soaking? Yes. So we always rinse the rice, and my fiancé is Japanese, so she is the one who taught me exactly how rice should be handled. Um, and the reason this idea came up that we could be making it better, we just traveled to Japan to visit her grandmother, and her grandmother had the most amazing rice. Even after, you know, it was came out of the freezer, frozen, we'd heat it up in the microwave, and it was just incredible. And she also uses a uh, Zojirushi rice maker, rents it, fill it up to the appropriate number of cups of rice with water, and then turn it on. And that's all she does. And she gets a much better product. Can I ask a question? Are you sure she's using the same ratio of water to rice as you are? Now, I assume that Zojirushi, on their bowls that are used to cook the rice, I assume that they have the same ratio of water to rice for each different machine. I'm wondering if she is just using a different, different kind of, of rice. rice. Well, the first thing I would do is I would reduce the amount of water, mm -hmm. cut back the water by 20% or 25%. I would try that. And I think the type of rice, obviously, is also an issue. I have one other suggestion. Get some of the rice that she has. Have her send you mm -hmm. some and try that. Yeah, that's my thought. It might be we get a nishiki medium grain rice that comes from Japan, and we buy a 15-pound bag for about $25. I was shown the rice that her grandmother uses, and it comes in about a 3- to 5-pound bag, and it's $15 per oh, bag. So it is much more okay. expensive. It's in Japanese, so I need to have her decipher if it's the same type of rice or not. 
I put my money on the water rice ratio, but maybe mm-hmm. it could it could be the or rice. maybe a, a trip to Japan is needed. What we'll do. My fiance and I are getting married. Congratulations. And she's right. going to come. Thank you so much. And she's going to come down to Houston, Texas. So instead of having her bring any clothing, we'll just have her bring her suitcase full of rice. Tell her, no, you don't need a wedding present. You just need rice. <laughs> no one's mentioned the elephant in the room, which is if you didn't know what great rice tasted like, you'd be perfectly happy right now. That is 100% true. That's the problem. Thank you all so much. Yep. I'll try to keep you updated on uh, my journey towards better rice. Sure. So thank you again. Take thank care. you. Thanks. This is Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio. If you'd like your cooking question answered, give us a ring anytime. That's one eight five five four bowtie That's one eight five five four bowtie You can also email us at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, my name is Beverly. Hi, Beverly. How are you? I'm very good, thank you. Do you have uh, a question for Sarah? I sure do. Okay. Some time ago, I was on a retirement wine tour (laughs) and bought a bottle of mead. Oh, my condolences. (laughs) I did that once, too. For some reason, I had a flashback to college, and I thought I had some mead at that time and thought it was really good. Well, you know, it's 100 years later. And so I bought this bottle of mead and had a few sips of it and then thought, this is not what I thought it no. was. So now I'm thinking, is there anything I can do with it to use in cooking? Well, I bought a bottle five years ago in Vermont because that's, you know, the typical thing one does in Vermont is to make strange alcohol. My theory is people <laughs> used to drink whatever they could get their hands on at the time. <laughs> and someone had a lot of honey sitting around and they made mead. I found it wasn't sweet, though. It wasn't sweet at all. Maybe there is good mead out there. But is your sweet? It's semi-sweet. Oh, really? Oh. They had a sweet and a semi-sweet. I was surprised that they even had mead. I thought that was unusual. I haven't heard that term forever. I mean, isn't that like English and... King Arthur. Ancient oh, yeah. and... You know, Knights of the Round Table. Knights I mean, in shining armor day. I mean, more ancient than when we were in college. And, can, can, can I geez, just... What read... happened to Ripple and Boone's Farm and, you know, all those? <laughs> well, my, my roommate reminded me that what we were drinking was Matus that came yes, in a really Matus. cool bottle. And we bought it because it was great, and you could put a candle in it right. afterwards, and it looked really cool when it dripped down the side of the gray Yes, bottle. we love that, us girls. The one thing you could do with it, though, maybe, maybe, is to poach fruit in it or something like that and put that, a lot of other stuff in with it. Yeah. You don't think you could use it in sauces, like with fruit? I mean, since it's already semi-sweet, like with pork or duck, and add some plums and a little bit of chicken broth or something like that? Let's ask a question. How much was the bottle? Uh, Ten bucks. Okay, I'm going to send you ten bucks. You can throw it out. <laughs> now, you won't feel guilty. Oh, my goodness. How do you really feel about me, well, Chris? Well, I mean, buy a nice Sancerre. I mean, I don't know, yeah. for the same amount of money, right? I mean, well. well no, I, I think it's off the air. We'll take her address. I'll send her 10 bucks. Okay. Everyone's happy. <laughs> okay. You don't have to do that. All right, Beverly. I well, guess ten, 10 bucks. I'll poaching fruit. I thought about boiling it down and putting honey in it and making a sauce for something, like Throw baklava or something oh, and throw it. <laughs> right. Or for ice cream or, you know. Yeah, something. No, yeah, I think no. poaching fruit would be the only real possibility. But, okay. you know, I, I've made mistakes a lot more costly than 10 bucks. So I think. <laughs> it's interesting <laughs> that you're holding on to it now that you figured yeah. out you don't like it. Well, I put it in the refrigerator and, and like I just keep looking at it. It's and still going, there. There's got to be something well, I can do with that besides throw it down the toilet. <laughs> it reminds me of all those jars of stuff that are on the door of your refrigerator. Yes. You know, that just take up so much space and you don't remember why you have them. Yeah. So Could it clean a toilet, do you think? Oh, that's a good there, question. That's it. 
That's a good question. You have to dye it blue. Yeah. Be fine. <laughs> I'll, I'll try that. All, All right. right. Beverly, thanks. Thank you. Take care. Bye. Bye-bye. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. After the break, I chat with Rowan Anderson. He's an Australian food blogger, and he will eat just about anything from eel to kangaroo, but he won't necessarily tell you the truth about his ingredients, at least until you have enjoyed that very first bite. I'm Christopher Kimball, and now here's a word from our friends at Allagash Brewing Company, who love food as much as we do here at Milk Street. Hi, this is Jason Perkins. I'm the brewmaster at Allagash, and I've been making Allagash White in Portland, Maine since 1999. So a white beer is a very old style of beer. Traditionally, it was brewed with spices of some type, typically coriander and orange peel. And I think one of the things that makes Allagash White distinctive and different is the rare combination of complexity and drinkability. And it's sometimes remarkable to stop and realize that I never get tired of it. You know, I'll open a can or I'll pour a glass and the first sip and I'm like, man, this beer is good. There are a lot of different ways that folks can enjoy an Allagash White, and here are some of the examples of what folks here at the brewery like to do. My favorite thing to pair with an Allagash White is simple, beautiful seared scallops over a bed of fresh greens with blood orange and shaved fennel. My favorite would probably have to be like an Italian or a hoagie, capicola, pickled vegetables, crusty bread. It's got that nice lemony, zesty character that just gets you ready for the next bite. The ultimate pairing for me is this dish called bosom, which is this like big pork shoulder with like salt and brown sugar. We also call it candy pork in my house and a little like scallion ginger sauce. It's like lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, and it's just perfection. My other top choice was like a hot dog. Like just have a hot dog and have an Allagash White. You don't need to dress it up. There's something about mussels with beer, especially the white, that is just so good. I feel like it goes really well with different soft cheeses that aren't too dominant, but then also with like spicy Indian food. So I think it's just really versatile. I could imagine like something like um like lemon meringue pie, that would be really nice. Pairing Allagash White with carrot cake is a thing of beauty. This maybe it sounds really boring, but pepperoni pizza. <laughs> I feel like after a long week, having like a nice warm pepperoni pizza and a cold Allagash White is just like you made it. Like you did your week, you deserve this pizza, you deserve this beer. It's perfect in summer, it's perfect in winter. I haven't really found a flavor that I don't think works really well with Allagash <laughs> Yeah, so not only do I drink it while I cook, I often cook with it. So if I'm creating some kind of stew, I'll add a little bit of Allagash White to it. A lot of people use Allagash White in like a fried fish batter. Anywhere where you can add like a spritz of lemon or a spritz of lime, that could be the beer. We are very food-minded here at Allagash, obviously. (laughs) And I think because of that Allagash White, 
is kind of subtle in a way that not all beers are, and I think that makes it very food friendly. I think it tends to unlock qualities in the food that you otherwise wouldn't necessarily notice. Like it's not too hoppy or it's not too sweet, so it sits right in the middle and sort of brings the flavors of the dish to life. If you ask anyone here at Allagash, we're pretty much all stands for this beer. We love it so much because every time you have it, you pick up something new. Every time you come back to it, you're reminded like, oh wow, yeah, that's really good. This is Jason Perkins again. Just want to say thanks to everyone at Allagash for sharing. You can try Allagash White at home, too. Head to Allagash.com slash locator to find Allagash White near you. For 21 plus only, please drink responsibly. Allagash Brewing Company, Portland, Maine. This is Mill Street Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Right now, it's time to talk to Rowan Anderson. He's an Australian food blogger who currently lives on a farm in Ballarat, central Victoria. His blog, Whole Larder Love, documents his transition to an intense local diet. His most recent book, published just last year, is A Year of Practiculture. His newest venture, The Nursery Project, will be a nonprofit foundation aiming to promote health via nutrition. Welcome to Milk Street. Thank you for having me. A pleasure. You grew up on a farm in Victoria. You were hunting and fishing. Uh, What did you hunt and what did you fish? Uh, we're very fortunate to live on a little river called the Tarago River and, and there was introduced trout species, rainbow and brown trout and brown fish and a couple of different freshwater crustacea, so different types of crayfish and also eels, which, uh, would migrate from the Pacific somewhere in the middle of the Pacific all the way to our little river in Victoria. And, uh, they were delicious things to eat. So how do you catch an eel? Do you have baskets of some kind? Do you, uh, uh, there's, do you a, do that? there's a couple of different techniques. You can use a traditional worm on a hook, something as simple as that. I've taken to a new technique, which um, I'm not even sure if it's legal. It's a, <laughs> a trick they use in New Zealand, which is because they're a nocturnal hunting animal, you can uh, set a, a bit of a, a burly or, or some bait in a in like an old stocking or something that the eel can't get but can smell and can get attracted to, and you tie that to an end of a rope, and and the eel at night time will, will swim towards that trying to get to it, and then you check those lines with a torch and a spear, and you can spear the eels uh, as you torch the light through the, through the water. Uh, and it's a really effective technique. If I talk about eating eel, uh, most Australians would turn their nose up at it, which is quite interesting if you go to other countries and it's an absolute delicacy and it's regarded in high esteem. And I think that's um, an interesting thing to note that uh, you know many of us in, our, in the Western world are so obsessed with mainstream, you know, conventional processed foods and what's marketed to us that we don't have an understanding of what beautiful food is right at our doorstep. Okay, so so you catch the eel. How do you dress out an eel and how do you cook it? Well, you can do it a couple of different ways. You can just gut it and salt brine it for a couple of hours or even overnight if you like. Then I like to hot smoke them. And then, then I process, pull all the meat off it and then put it in things like a pasta sauce or a, some sort of a cheesy smoked eel dip or something along those lines. The indigenous people will nail the head of the eel to a tree and then use a pair of pliers and skin pull it. the skin right yeah. off yeah. and then grill it over coals. And that's another technique. When I was a kid, I used to wrap an eel in river silt in the mud and then throw that on the 
coals of a campfire and then the skin would stick to the mud because it's quite it's quite sticky and then you, you would just peel that off and mm. you would expose this beautiful white flesh and I'd just have a, a couple of lemons and a pinch of salt and a fork and that would be my meal. So I went through your book, A Year of Practiculture, and the thing that came to mind was, okay, you kind of like the notion of sort of dystopic future, civilization kind of collapses. There you are standing naked in the forest with a few tools to sort of, you know, hack a living out of Mother Nature. Is there something in between that and the society we actually live in that is your your perfect existence? Or do, yeah, do, do, or do you yeah, want to yeah. run run around naked in the woods? Which, which does that actually hold a lot of appeal for you? No, it it doesn't really. I think the idea there is for us to have a better relationship with nature because at the moment most people are so distant from nature, they form you know opinions and views and belief systems that are based on that human built environment and human infrastructure and. I think once you have that ideology embedded in your brain, it's very difficult to to have rational thinking in regards to where we fit in natural ecosystems. So the the middle ground is is I, I, I always go on about our reliance on processed foods. If if we moved away from that and and started to appreciate whole foods or just just foods in their their raw form and we start cooking with a tomato or a carrot or a bit of meat as opposed to a processed version of that ingredient, that would be a good start. And then from there, the next step would be, well, do I want the organic version of that or do I want the local version of that? And then the next step would be, if I'm going to eat meat, can I maybe look into ethical options? So there's there's lots of different steps that you can get in between the modern processed food and the running naked in the forest, um, picking wild mushrooms. So I, I rabbit hunt in the winter in Vermont, and, and when I mention that to people, they, they turn pale, and yeah. n- nobody understands the idea. It, it sounds cruel. Uh, it, but you, you said the following, quote, if you honestly can't bring yourself to acquire your own meat, then you shouldn't eat it. So if you go rabbit hunting and someone turns up their nose at you for that, uh, what is your response? Oh, I, I love this. My first response is, do you eat meat? If the answer is yes, then I say, do you eat chicken? And if the answer is yes, well, then I inform the person that over 90% of Australian chicken is still intensively factory farmed. Then I ask them, do they know how long a chicken lives for in one of those factories? And what are the conditions? And, 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 the ignorance is amazing. It's an ignorance because of the information that's provided to us as consumers. The same goes for pork. And then I ask a person, if they eat chicken, I ask them, have you ever held a live chicken, like a live, living, breathing chicken in your hands? And the answer is quite often no. And then I ask them, have you ever killed an animal? Uh, and the answer is no. And then I say, so with all this in mind, me going out and hunting an animal that has lived free range, completely naturally, is organic, and has one bad moment in their life in a split second, what is the better option? If you have an understanding of what these systems and cycles are and the realities of the food that you consume, 
that is what I describe when I say a better relationship with nature. If you know how an egg is produced on a large scale with huge conventional machinery, if you have an understanding of how your chicken is produced, that is your better understanding of natural systems. Let's talk a few recipes. Um, a sneaky eel dip. You were just talking about smoking eel, and you, you make it taste like smoked trout, I guess. Yeah. I mean, that's a funny thing, too, is you know people have these preconceived ideas. that They'll say, oh, I'm never going to eat horse, or how could you eat frog's legs? And it's, it's about what you grow up with and, and what's within your food culture. If we open up our minds and try lots of different food as opposed to what we're habitually used to, then you start, your eyes open up and, and it's not just food that becomes more enjoyable and dynamic. It's your entire existence. And one of those things with a sneaky eel dip is if I said to most people, oh, I've made an eel dip, most people would look at me and say, that's disgusting. But if I feed it to them and tell them it's trout and they love it, then I tell them afterwards. And then from then on, they'll, they'll, they'll say to me next time they're over, is there a chance you'll have the, the eel dip again? So what do you do with a piece of meat? Like people often ask me how to cook venison, especially the leg. Uh, not a yep. lot. Of, it's very lean, uh, not a lot of connective tissue. It's not like the back strap, the tenderloin, which you can cook quickly and hot. Yep. So uh, what do you do with meat like that? Lean, no connective tissue, big hunk of meat. Uh, what do you do? Yep. Well, I would put the things that are missing back in there. So last year, I remember I, I was a big fan of mincing different types of fat, either lamb or pork fat with venison leg, because especially those, you know, there's the bigger, the, the bigger, the deer, the, the leaner, the meat, and it, it's really, you can't really do that much with it, even if you braise it. But I found adding different types of fat, specifically lamb, lamb seems to work quite well. And then it, as a mince, it works really well and, and makes simple dishes like a bolognese or a lasagna. Hmm. The same goes for the kangaroo legs. The kangaroo tail is amazing because it's full of connective tissue and it's gelatinous and fantastic. But the legs, the individual muscles on the legs, are they're very, very dry, but uh, you can't cook them quickly because they're just like eating an old boot. So you need to mince them, massage them in with a little bit of fat and then utilise them you know, for you know, something along the lines of even a burger or a ragu or something like that. When, when have you cooked a kangaroo and why did you cook it? The first time, well, I'd say about 15 years ago, I bought kangaroo meat from the supermarket and uh, was pretty amazed. It was a good option, alternative for beef. And Australia is a is a very, very ancient continent with ancient soils that are nutrient-leached and, and very fragile soils. So introduced cattle do wreak quite a lot of havoc on, on our natural landscape. And, and, you know, we're a big beef-producing country now, so... When I looked at kangaroo, it was an alternative to be a little bit more environmentally friendly. So I bought the kangaroo from a supermarket, marinated, uh, and it was a cut, one of the cuts that had been massaged and tenderized and then marinated, and it was one of those you could throw it in a stir fry, and it was delicious. Hmm. And then I have been a bit of a fan of utilizing roadkill, and people, that's another thing that, you know, people, when I mention that, they think that I'm some kind of crazy person, but... If you see the size of a kangaroo that's killed on the side of the road, and, and that quite often happens, and so I've, I've kind of become accustomed to salvaging, you know, a very good natural resource. Okay, let's say I live in London, and, and I don't get out of London much to go to a farm or a, or a farmer's market. Uh, 
and I'm listening to this show and I'm looking at, at what you've done. What would be two or three things you think someone in a big city could do which would get them a little bit closer to your view about how to eat? Yeah, I, I think developing that better relationship with how food is produced, and, and that's that could also be saying, you know, have a better relationship with nature. In most Western cities now are community gardens and and where or some a little bit of urban agriculture and it's not really on a large scale but they're fantastic places for people to have experiences and and experiences that educate but i think the other thing as well is like i was talking about before the different stages that you could go through as a person that wants to have a better understanding of how their food is produced if you're living in a city you you can choose to buy less processed food or less you know mass produced takeaway food and, and start cooking with whole ingredients and then that can send you on a journey where you, you become inquisitive and you become very interested in learning wanting to know more about how your food is produced and then you might get out of the city on a weekend and go visit an educational farm there is no black and white answer to how best to form a better knowledge of of how your food is produced but i think and as much as I find farmers markets in Australia can be a little bit challenging in that they sell expensive soaps and artisan candles and, and woodwork, but we, I just really want a place where I can buy food. I think those places are very good. They play a very important role educating people the seasonality of food. You know, underneath all of this, I guess my question is, is there a philosophy you subscribe to, which is that you shouldn't get what you want unless you've really earned it in some way. Is is that a message you, you give to your kids and is, is part of this whole underlying philosophy of how you cook and eat? I think ethically for me, my approach is I would prefer as much as possible to hunt it myself. But let's not forget that I buy meat off some local farmers as well. So that fits into my ethical approach of supporting free range and local. But that's... I'm only fortunate because I chose to live in the hill country, the central highlands of Victoria. So for an individual living in Melbourne that is interested in in reducing their impacts or supporting more uh, ethical systems, they could easily hunt out in a different technique free-range meat producers that are are living out the country that visit the city to sell directly to customers. And I, I am definitely not an advocate in any way whatsoever for people suggesting that all people should grow vegetables in their backyard and go and hunt rabbits and deer and catch eel and smoke them. I think the important thing is for every individual to one, wake up and say, what am I eating? What is it doing to my body? What is it doing to the environment? Do I care to make any changes? And if I do care, then what steps can I take? So I think I think it's important to have an understanding that we're all unique and we all have unique requirements and what suits me does not suit the majority of the Western population, I think. Last question. Was there a moment when all this became really clear to you as a kid or, or later? Just as something that happened, you were hunting, you were cooking, what you've been talking about during the show just became crystal clear? It's been a very slow process from, you know, if you if you looked at me 10 years ago when I was an obese, overworked, stressed out, person living in a city to where I am now, you know, I made all these quite gradual steps. And, and I remember ripping up my backyard concrete and turning this this urban backyard into a food bowl. 
And one of the driving forces there was I actually just wanted a hobby and I wanted an oasis in my backyard. And it seemed more practical to me to grow vegetables than, than to grow ornamental plants. So I started to fall in love with cooking and develop this better understanding of how food was produced, where it was coming from, what impacts it had. And it has been a slow process to get to where I am now. My approach to food changes all the time. I have to make, you know, I have to make compromise in a lot of ways, but I, I, I celebrate the victories as they happen and try to make the right choices that I still think there is a lot for me to learn over the, the coming decades. That was Rowan Anderson, an Australian food blogger who currently lives in a farm in central Victoria. Food has always been an icon, a means of telling a story. Today, food is benign, a symbol of harmony with nature and the good life. But in Grimm's fairy tales, children are cooked, Little Red Riding Hood is swallowed whole, and don't forget Hansel and Gretel. And in some versions of Cinderella, she actually cooks and pickles the stepsisters. So perhaps we should count our blessings. Modern children's stories don't include recipes for cooking them. This is Milk Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Right now, it's time to chat with regular contributor and New Yorker staff writer Adam Gopnik about the death of an American culinary temple. Adam, how are you? I am well. What I've been thinking about this week is the closing of a New York institution, and I've been thinking about it in terms of the long thread of New York restaurant institutions closing. The one I have in mind is the Carnegie Deli the kind of great temple of Jewish delicatessen of the pastrami sandwich and the Nova on bagel. And I had great affection for Carnegie Deli. I had personal affection for it. It was actually the place where I stopped on midnight when my first child, my son Luke, was born. And I still have the napkin from that visit. But I had great institutional affection for it too, Chris, because it summed up a particular kind of New York Jewish culture. And it struck me suddenly, Chris, that it was one of those significant closings, that even in New York, where five famous restaurants seem to close every month, even in New York, really mattered. And I began to make a list to myself of the ones that had been most memorable to see if I could find a pattern or a meaning somewhere in them. And I was thinking that there really had been three of that kind in my lifetime. There was the closing of Luchow's. It had been on 14th Street off Union Square for a century when it closed for good in 1982. Then the next most memorable closing was Le Cote Basque in 2002. Each one of those places had closed and with them shut down, in effect, a whole tradition, a whole institution, if you like, a whole way of cooking that had been integral to New York and by extension to American food. Luchow's marked the beginning of the end of the empire of German food. Le Cote Basque, of course, had been the temple and then the desecrated temple of the classic French haute cuisine restaurant in New York. And now the Carnegie Deli has passed away as well. I'm sure, Chris, with your particular preoccupations, you can see what all three of those passings have in common. Oh, boy. Now you're really putting me on the spot. Well, I would say it's the end of Eurocentric eating Bingo. Uh, in New York. Right. It's the cooking of Northern Europe, isn't it? And it didn't matter if it was the cured pastrami sandwich or if it was sauerkraut or if it was um, choucroute and cassoulet. It all shared a particular kind of starched base to our contemporary palates, heavy 
and certainly designed for a cold climate kind of cooking. And what struck me when I was thinking about the closing of the Carnegie Deli, beyond my own nostalgic regret for the passing of that kind of Henny Youngman, Woody Allen, Broadway Danny Rose culture, is that that's a real transformation in the way we cook and the way we eat now. Well, it may also be in an era when there were 20 culinary temples in a city, and now we have 20,000 temples. The question is, can you have a temple if there are 10,000 of them? What happens exactly, Chris? The temple becomes a truck. I mean, obviously and literally trucks in many cases, and we have the same attachment and the same connection to the food truck that we might once have had to the temple. But even the places that are not trucks, like all of the pop-ups that appear throughout all of our big cities, have the same essential kind of self-expression as the food truck. There was something about the connection of that Northern European cuisine to the idea of a temple. There was something about the dinner that left you immovable after and the place that was meant to be immovable in your imagination that stuck together. And now we've passed both out of the kind of cooking that they've done. We've really bidded farewell, I think, Chris. I think that's the biggest change in the history of American eating in the last 15 years. And at the same time, we've entered not just new areas of taste, but new ways of consuming them, and they don't include the institutional temple. I think that's absolutely true. I think we also we don't have a culinary past. Like if you think of those places, they all had history to them and a sense of immigrants coming from a place, and now we come from nowhere and therefore are willing to go anywhere, right? That's beautifully put, if I may say. Chris, that's exactly right. Places like Luchow's spoke not just to people who consume German food, it spoke to people who came from Germany. Carnegie Deli was a place that rang with our grandfathers. In my case, quite truly, my grandfather loved that kind of food. So yes, I think that's true. Those places spoke to the past. The places we go to now speak to some degree of an unlimited future, but they also speak of absolute planetary consumerism. We can go anywhere any night we want to. Adam, thank you. And I, I think we could end with this phrase, the king is dead, long live the king. Or maybe we should say, the king is dead, long live the multitudinous peasants. <laughs> Adam, thank you so much. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. After the break, more of your cooking questions with my co-host, Sarah Moulton, the star of Sarah's Weeknight Meals and author of Home Cooking 101. You know, wonderful pistachios have become my go-to snack. Now, I could list all the health benefits. They're a good source of protein, fiber, and unsaturated fats. But for me, flavor comes first, and that's why it's pistachios, not peanuts, in our household. Wonderful pistachios come in a variety of flavors and sizes, including sea salt and vinegar, chili roasted, and smoked barbecue. Check out wonderfulpistachios.com to learn more. That's wonderfulpistachios.com. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. 
and that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, this is Chris Kimball, and I need your help. We're working on a story about the battles we all have in our home kitchens. Maybe you're tired of your partner telling you how to cook, or maybe they always leave a mess. Or maybe you're frustrated by your loved one's highly restrictive diet. We want to hear about your kitchen dramas from the biggest food fights to your everyday grievances. You can leave us a voicemail at 617-249-3167, 617-249-3167, or send a voice memo to radiotips at 177milkstreet.com. One more time, call us at 617-249-3167 or email us a voice memo at radiotips at 177milkstreet.com. Please include your name and where you're calling from, and thank you. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Right now, it's time to take some calls with Sarah Moulton. Sarah, are you ready to go? I am very ready, Chris. Hello. Who do we have on the line? This is Corey. Hey, Corey. Where are you calling from? I'm calling from Eagle, Idaho. What's your question? Well, so we've uh, sort of half-accidentally begun growing currants, and they aren't common around here. Uh, What I've been able to find online has been just a various array of jams and how to throw them into muffins. And I would like to know if there are more ways to use currants, maybe even some savory ways. What color are these currants? Because there are several different kinds of currants. We have... Some white ones that do really well. We added some red and black in the last year as well. So you've got all three. Yes, and I've actually found that there's another one that's a golden currant. Right. And I'm kind of curious about that one, too. Have you tried eating any of them straight up? We have. The red and the black are a little bit too tart, but the white are pretty nice. They're supposed to be the sweetest. They are so far. I use them in salads, like grain salads. Oh. You start with a grain, and a lot of Middle Eastern recipes do the same thing. It's just a little bit of sweetness and a little bit of acid. And so if you have bulgur, lentils, whatever you have, even couscous, something like that, which obviously is not a grain, mix that in with that with herbs, maybe some nuts. Um, But it's just a nice counterpoint. Add just a little bit of 
extra flavor. You know what I think you could also do is, you know, uh, a lot of times with duck or pork, which are sort of fatty, yeah, you pair them with fruit. Mostly the acid of the fruit cuts through that fattiness. So you could do, you know, roast duck or duck breasts or roast pork and make a sauce with them with maybe a little bit of vinegar and sugar and the berries and then add some um, beef broth, chicken broth and reduce it. It would be wonderful. That sounds great. They'd be good with cheese, too. You know, a lot of times salty cheeses go wonderfully with fruit. Yeah, that's true. Again, both for the acid and for the sweetness. So that's that that's another really thought. Good. And then, of course, you could make your own cordial, and now you're going to ask me for a recipe, and I don't have one. But well, that... we actually experimented with that this last summer. And how'd it come out? <laughs> it, it did all right. It was a little bit too funny for me, but my husband really liked it. One of the things people do now is just preserve fruit, right, in alcohol, right, which is very simple. Yeah. You let it sit for a month or so. Vodka or brandy. And then you put that over ice cream or use that whatever with a cake or something. Yeah. But that's, you know, sugar, alcohol, and fruit and just let it sit in a jar. Right. That'd be wonderful. And if you have a lot of extra fruit, that's a good way to keep it. Wow. Okay. All right. Thank, Thank you. you. Yep. Take Thanks care. Thanks for calling. Yep. Bye. Hello. Who do we have on the line? This is Jeff from Cleveland. Well, how can we help you? I have a deep love of cumin. I want to start by saying, please don't correct me like my mother. She says cumin. Is that correct? Please tell me it's not. I think the Brits say cumin. cumin. They say oh, aluminium, okay. too. And they right. also say some other weird yeah. things, yeah. My deep love of cumin is actually, I put too much of it in my lentil soup. And if I don't put enough in, it doesn't taste enough like cumin. But if I put too much in, it gets this weird florally taste. It is floral, yeah. Yeah. So is I, there anything? Yes, there is. We just tested this. I would oh. get whole cumin seed and toast it in a skillet for just a few minutes. Until you can smell you it. You smell it. And don't use ground. And that'll give you a very clean, punchy flavor. Fantastic. You, you, you won't have to use too much of it. And it's much, much, much better than using ground. It's much ground. better taste. Yeah. But you know, oh, I had, fantastic. I had another thought, because I think cumin is one of those things like coriander or like goat cheese that people just hate or love. You know, Jeff, I find that, like, my daughter can't stand cumin, and it's you find it often in chili powder and in other things. Yeah. So another way around it, just in case you're making lentil soup for somebody who doesn't really like cumin, would be I to... I wouldn't do that. Oh. <laughs> I don't think... I don't. You wouldn't like them. You wouldn't be friends would, with yeah, them. Exactly. I would have nothing whatsoever to do with <laughs> Okay, that. all right. Well, then I guess it's a moot point, but let me just throw this out anyway. Maybe what you'd like to do is toast some cumin and then combine it with some oil and make a cumin oil. And then what you can do is cook your lentil soup and then for you, drizzle the cumin oil over afterwards oh. as like a finisher. Oh. Or maybe even toast the cumin and then add the oil and toast it a little more in the oil to even get more flavor out, then let it cool down. That's a good idea. Yeah, that would be a lovely finisher. I'm incredibly excited about that and I will absolutely try that. Does it matter what oil I use? Well, it depends on what cuisine you're doing. I imagine it's mostly Middle Eastern, but it could be Mexican, too. I mean, there's cumin in Mexican food. So if you're going with Middle Eastern Mediterranean, it should be olive oil because you want to bring that flavor into the mix, too. So just match it to whatever I'm making, basically. Right. Yes. Whatever nationality or... Yes. And oh, I've... I'm so excited about this. I cannot tell you how happy... You, you are the most you know excited what? caller who's ever called this. You know what? Like in Indian well, cuisine, it would be ghee, G-H-E-E. Because they That's use true. cumin, too. They would. Or clarified butter, even just butter. So toast the cumin in with the butter, and then oh. you drizzle your butter oil on top after. Oh, yeah. Butter cumin. God, that sounds so good. Yeah. <laughs> Could we have every caller be this impressed? I know, really. I've well, never I met anybody who loved cumin as much. That's wonderful. Oh, 
I cannot tell you how much I appreciate this. Okay. Man, I, I <laughs> Jeez, we like you. I'm going home now. <laughs> We're done. I know you guys do a lot of stuff that's over my head, but that's the thing is there's stuff I can use, but then there's also things I can dream about. I Aspiration. We like that. Yeah. I spend most of my time dreaming at the office. So <laughs> <laughs> Jeff, thanks for the enthusiasm. That's yes, um, we yeah. appreciate that. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much. Right. I really appreciate it. Sure. Take care. This is Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio. If you'd like your cooking questions answered, give us a ring, one 4 bowtie That's one 855 the number 4, bowtie. You can also email us at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. You can find our shows on iTunes, Stitcher, and TuneIn, also at MilkStreetRadio.com. Right now it's time for this week's Milk Street Basic. This week's Mill Street Basic is about using a mortar and pestle. You know, everyone these days always pulls out the food processor, even for little tiny jobs. And some of those jobs are actually much more easily done in a mortar and pestle. They're great for grinding whole spices, for making paste like for a pesto. And they're also great for crushing nuts without the fuss of dragging out something that plugs into the wall. Now, the other thing is that the rustic texture you get from mortar and pestle is actually better than if you were everything up in a food processor. A couple of tips about buying one. Be sure that both the mortar and the pestle are very rough, not smooth, which makes grinding easier. I like rough granite or marble models. They're terrific. And it's also good if they're fairly heavy duty so they don't move around on top of the counter. So there you have it in Milk Street. We love a mortar and pestle, especially for small jobs. And very often it actually produces bigger flavors. Right now, it's time to talk with Abraham Conlon. He's a Chicago-based chef. He's also author, co-author of the cookbook, Adventures of Fat Rice. He started his culinary career early on as a teenager in his hometown of Lowell, Mass. Recently, Conlon returned there to host a pop-up dinner to cook from the menu of Fat Rice. That's the Chicago restaurant he started in 2012 with Adrian Lowe. We are making the uh, famous dish of Macau called Galinha Africana, or African chicken, kind of like a piri-piri chicken, uh, with lemon, bay leaf, chili peppers, but then kind of smothered in this coconut peanut chili sauce, which is really nice. It's a really unique dish to Macau, and one that has been on the menu for a long time at Fat Rice. And um, yeah, we're going to present that today along with a little bit of coconut rice, a vegetable curry with uh, bali shao, which is a Macanese uh, shrimp condiment fermented with laurel leaves, uh, black peppercorn, chili, lemon, and uh, it's really nice and funky and, and just a little bit of coconut milk and has just some nice seasonal vegetables here, cabbage and turnips and, and butternut squash. I caught up with Abraham later on and learned about the food that inspired the restaurant. That's the home cooking of Macau something most of us, including me, know absolutely nothing about. So fat rice is named after a traditional party dish from Macau. Uh, Most people probably don't know where Macau is or anything about it and what kind of cooking is done there. Could you just give us a a quick two-sentence introduction to this? Macau is located in southern China across the bay from uh, Hong Kong. It's about a 40-minute ferry ride. And there, it was a former Portuguese enclave trading post, so lots of influences from the Portuguese as well as China and also from India and Malaysia. So the food there really combines all of these influences. So there's a lot of influence from Goa, southern India as well, and other places? 
Yes. So, I mean, the food of Macau really is kind of the culmination of all the places that the Portuguese uh, were and were influenced by over the past uh, 500 years, including Goa, India, as well as Brazil, Africa, Malaysia, some influences from southern Japan and, and China and Portugal, of course. The dish fat rice, arroz gordo, you said it's a little bit like paella, but it doesn't actually mean fat. It just means rich in in the diversity of ingredients. So maybe you could just describe that dish. Yes, uh, arroz gordo is our signature dish. It's our namesake. It literally means fat rice, but fat means more of uh, substantial or or rich like there's lots of goodies in it you know it's a it's a tomato and garlic scented rice with uh, various types of sausage in it uh, chicken fat fried croutons curry chicken thighs we put char siu pork on ours as well as uh, chili prawns a macau staple recipe as well as hard-boiled tea eggs and clams as well this is a book that has cartoons in it. It's almost a comic book for the steps. It has a comic book covers with the adventures of fat rice, the alien asparagus, the giant squid. And it feels um, it feels like a real throwback book in terms of being exciting, fun, funny, useful. Uh, and the second thing is the food. <laughs> There's so many people doing simple food these days, you know, simple light food with three ingredients. I mean, that's not what you're doing. This is big, big flavor food. Could you just talk about that? Because it it seems, it's refreshing. I mean, that's one of the the things that drew me to Macanese cuisine and and cookery is that there were so many different components. The flavors were bold. The portions were big. You know, lots of these were meant for gatherings and parties. Lots of these things come from the home. And they are really meant for sharing and um, to be a reflection of the Macanese culture, as well as fat rice, the restaurant being a, lot, a culmination of lots of different influences. And we naturally wanted the book to reflect that on both sides. And, and to really, we wanted it to be really simple and really visual so it could be easy, easy to utilize. Because yeah, the, the recipes are relatively complex and there is a decent amount of ingredients and work involved, but we wanted to make it approachable and we wanted to make it uh, really kind of fun. Talk to me about the first time you went to Macau. I mean, how did you end up being so so fascinated by the cuisine? Sure. I mean, when I finally got the chance to go to China, and I said, well, while we're there, we should try to go to Macau. It's this place I've known about for a while. I've kind of off and on been studying the cuisine, and I'm really interested because I'm Portuguese, and I grew up in a town that had a 30% Southeast Asian population, and this was a place that combines my culture and my culinary interests together. So 11 years later, I finally got to go to Macau. And then going into, who's one of my mentors now, Donna Aida de Jesus, her restaurant, Rikeshu, it was a very simple restaurant that served very simple food that had very interesting elements to it. And I kind of tasted all of my life's experiences in just a couple bites. Um, Could you just pick one dish for me that sort of exhibits a lot of the the attributes of Macanese cooking? Is something that's not overly complex. All right, so if I had to pick one dish that exemplified Macanese cuisine and all of its influences and its harmony, I'd have to say it would be tacho. Tacho, a Portuguese word essentially just meaning pot. But in Macau, tacho is essentially the Macanese 
version of cocido. So cocido being a boiled dinner from from Portugal and also in Galicia, Spain, which they have many similarities. A bunch of different sausages, potatoes, cabbage, various meats, chicken, etc., that have all been kind of cooked together to make a really nice hearty dish. But in Macau, instead of using Portuguese sausage, they will use Chinese sausage. And instead of using Iberian ham, they will use Chinese salted duck, along with other root vegetables that may be more common in China. All of this is flavored with cumin and coriander, as well as balishao. Balishao is a shrimp paste that kind of evolved from the uh, fermented shrimp pastes of Malaysia and got a Macanese twist when they would add brandy and bay leaf mm. and lemon and chili to it. So it's kind of really this like umami packed cured meats stew. And the best part of it, in my particular opinion, is the Chinese style puffed pork skins, which are almost like chicharrones, but after they go into the broth, they uh, really absorb a lot of the liquid, as well as all those umami flavors from all of the meats. And uh, usually this is a dish that is served uh, family style, much like cozido in Portugal or Spain, and uh, but definitely with kind of those uh, Chinese and, and Malay elements, along with the little uh, Indian-style spices. Abraham Connell, thank you so much. I, I love the book, The Adventures of Fat Rice. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. That was Abraham Conlon, chef and owner of Fat Rice, a restaurant in Chicago celebrating the food of Macau. When I spoke to Adam Gopnik about the Carnegie Deli, it reminded me that New York used to be the home of great culinary institutions, restaurants that have become icons for more than one generation. Le Cirque, the Russian Tea Room, Delmonico's, the Oyster Bar, how about the 21 Club or Tavern on the Green? Today, we're always seeking the next new thing, the best ramen joint or maybe the latest restaurant to serve grasshopper tacos. Perhaps every restaurant visit doesn't have to be a voyage of discovery. Once in a while, it's just nice to sit down and visit with an old friend. Thanks for listening to Milk Street Radio. You can listen to our weekly shows on iTunes, Stitcher, and TuneIn. Also on our own website, MilkStreetRadio.com, where you can also download each week's recipe. We'll be back next week. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is produced by Milk Street in association with WGBH. Executive producers Melissa Baldino and Stephanie Stender. Producer Amy Padula. Production assistant Carly Helmetog. Senior audio engineer Douglas Sugarts. Senior audio editor Melissa Allison with help from Vicki Merrick and Sydney Lewis. Audio mixing by Jay Allison at Atlantic Public Media. Production help Debbie Paddock. Theme music by Tubob Crew. Additional music by George Brandel Egloff. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is distributed by PRX. Mm-hmm.